Greetings, Earthling. You have landed on Renegade Files, your dark planet for paranormal tales, unsolved mysteries, and covert culture. I'm your host, Lex Gordon, sending this top-secret signal from the Jungle Villa Outpost deep in the uncharted tropics. Thank you so much for coming along on this mission. This one is amazing. This is Renegade Files Episode 15, The Bobby Kennedy Assassination. On June 5, 1968, just four and a half years after his brother, President John Kennedy, was shot and killed, U.S. Senator and presidential hopeful Bobby Kennedy addressed his supporters and the press at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, California. Kennedy had just won back-to-back victories in South Dakota and California on the campaign trail of primaries seeking the Democratic nomination for the upcoming presidential race. With minimal security, Bobby Kennedy left the podium and proceeded to exit the ballroom through a kitchen pantry when he was shot in the head and back multiple times. Bobby Kennedy died in the Good Samaritan Hospital 26 hours later. A Jordanian immigrant, Sirhan Sirhan, angry over RFK's position on Palestine, was wrestled to the ground at the time of the shooting, a smoking gun in his hand, and the LAPD had an open and shut case. But did they? From the first moments after the shooting, evidence of Sirhan Sirhan's connection with shady hypnosis programs and the bizarre letters found at his home, combined with the fact that he claimed to have no memory of either the shooting or writing those inflammatory letters, caused many to speculate that the assassin had acted under some kind of mind control. And this is not the only focus of the conspiracy theories to arise around the RFK killing. Accounts of a second gun, extra bullets, destroyed evidence, and a deep state cover-up began to amass and persist to this day. So join Renegade Files and together we will dive into one of the most tragic and least understood events of the space age American experience. The Bobby Kennedy Assassination. The Bobby Kennedy Assassination. The Bobby Kennedy Assassination. Prologue. Here are just a few notes on some terms and names in this episode. First, the specific location in the Ambassador Hotel where Bobby Kennedy was shot was a rectangular room between the hotel kitchens and the embassy ballroom where Senator Kennedy had just spoke. This room is called the pantry, the serving kitchen, or the kitchen hallway, depending on which news report, article, or hotel diagram you are consulting. In this episode, I try to stick to calling the room the pantry, since that seems to be the most common term for that space. The room looks to be 12 to 15 feet wide and about 30 to 40 feet long. It has an ice machine on one wall and a steam table on the other, and the room was used to stage food before delivery into the ballroom. Secondly, as we go through this case, I will most often refer to then-Senator Robert Kennedy as Bobby Kennedy, or just Bobby, since that was the name he was known by in the press at the time. It also helps us mentally distinguish Bobby Kennedy from his brother, President John Kennedy, 
whose name and assassination is interwoven with both the political times we are dealing with and the assassination of Bobby Kennedy himself. Which brings me to one last note on this subject. The killing of Bobby's older brother, JFK, is fraught with suspicious circumstances, wild conclusion-selective leaps of the imagination, and clear evidence that positively refutes the conclusion of the Warren Commission that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone to shoot President John Kennedy. We will do a multiple-part Renegade Files series, released consecutively, to investigate the JFK assassination. But the simple fact is that the only people who believe that Oswald killed JFK by himself, or even at all, base their conclusion purely on what the mainstream media has told them over the years. If you meet someone who believes that Lee Harvey Oswald shot JFK by himself, you have just met someone who either A. believes whatever the news tells them, or B. has simply never looked into that case in the slightest way. If the JFK assassination is anything, it is a relative victory of state-run propaganda that has been somewhat successful at convincing at least a percentage of the population that Oswald acted alone to kill the president. However, what is even more shocking is that the assassination of his younger brother, Robert Kennedy, just a few short years later, although riddled with nearly as many suspicious facts and conflicting testimonies, goes largely ignored by the general public, and, when considered at all, is a media story usually taken at face value. Ask the average person on the street, did Oswald shoot Kennedy alone? Probably not. Ask the same person who killed Bobby Kennedy. Oh yeah, Sirhan Sirhan in the Ambassador Hotel. It's odd. It's sad how quickly people give up. This case is one of the least analyzed and yet most critical assassinations in American history. In this episode of Renegade Files, we will look into three main aspects of the Bobby Kennedy shooting. First, we will learn who Bobby Kennedy was his history of confronting powerful criminals, and the idealism and political positions that made him both a hero to the common man and an enemy of the deep state. Second, we explore the facts of what happened that night at the Ambassador Hotel. We'll go over the timeline of events, positions of key players, and the official evidence given by the LA Police Department and echoed by the media at the time. Third, we will dive into the problems with the official narrative and the resulting conspiracy theories to make some sense out of the physical reality of the crime scene. Finally, I'll give you my summary and conclusions about this watershed moment in American history. Part 1. Bobby Kennedy The third of four sons born to Joe and Rose Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy attended Harvard, got a law degree from the University of Virginia, ran his brother John's campaign, which put him in the White House, and was then appointed as Attorney General to the JFK presidency. From this position, he launched a crackdown on organized crime while his brother moved through legal channels to disband the powerful CIA, scatter it to the wind as he is quoted as saying. According to Bobby Baker, the Senate Majority Secretary and a protege of Lyndon Johnson, 
President-elect Kennedy did not want to name his brother Bobby Attorney General, but their father overruled him. At the behest of Vice President-elect Johnson, Baker persuaded the influential Southern Senator Richard Russell to allow a voice vote to confirm the president's brother in January 1961, as Johnson knew Bobby Kennedy would have been lucky to get the support needed in a roll call vote. Bobby Kennedy immediately made a personal crusade to arrest and convict Teamster leader Jimmy Hoffa, and their on-screen arguments and barbs in the trial became the soap opera of the day. Hoffa was convicted on bribery and fraud charges and received a 13-year sentence. He was released by President Nixon in 1971, disappeared in 1975, and is widely assumed to have been murdered by the Mafia for a long list of transgressions. Amid his crackdown on organized crime, Bobby was also at constant odds with FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. Bobby used his direct connection to his president brother to assert leverage over Hoover and shift his focus away from the communist threat toward organized crime, which was a position and tactic that Hoover was vocally opposed to but obliged to comply with. During Bobby's tenure as Attorney General, arrests of organized crime figures rose 800% above those of his predecessor. Bobby Kennedy was also, in large part, in charge of the events that culminated in the disastrous Bay of Pigs incident, which stranded American-trained guerrillas on a beach in Cuba in a failed attempt to oust Castro from power. The bungled invasion and never-deployed air support for these troops on the ground in Cuba was an embarrassment to the JFK White House, which JFK took public responsibility for, but both John and Bobby Kennedy believed that they had been set up and tricked by the CIA and that the failure of that operation had been a planned outcome to discredit the president and his staff. In addition to this fiasco, Bobby Kennedy was the acting attorney general for the firing of Alan Dulles, the forced resignation of CIA officer General Charles Cabell, and the firing of CIA agent Richard Bissell, all orchestrated by his brother, and each of them, as Colonel Fletcher Prouty called them, sacred cows in intel since World War II. Charles Cabell was the brother of Earl Cabell, who was the mayor of Dallas when JFK was killed there, and Alan Dulles, before being fired by JFK, was the head of the CIA, oversaw the 1953 coup of Iran, headed the Lockheed U-2 spy plane program, orchestrated the Bay of Pigs invasion, and headed the CIA's MKUltra mind control program. He was later appointed to the Warren Commission to investigate the assassination of JFK. As I said, we'll do a four or five part Renegade Files series on the JFK assassination and I'll release those episodes consecutively so you can look forward to that. So J. Edgar Hoover, Jimmy Hoffa, hundreds of arrested mafia members, Alan Dulles, Charles Cabell, Richard Bissell, that's a pretty serious list of enemies. And these are just some of the enemies Bobby Kennedy trailed in his wake. After JFK's assassination and the subsequent LBJ presidency and following election, Bobby Kennedy chose to not run as LBJ's running mate and instead retreated to the Senate where he narrowly won a seat for New York in 1964. When LBJ withdrew from the 1968 presidential race, Bobby made the decision to run for that office. 
he ran on a ticket of civil rights for African Americans, a continued cleanup of organized crime, and the total withdrawal of U.S. armed forces from Vietnam, a continuation of a policy to which his brother had also been committed. Part 2. Timeline, Key Players, and the Official Story On the campaign trail in the summer of 1968, Senator Bobby Kennedy was among the favorites seeking the Democratic nomination for a presidential candidate. His consecutive victories in South Dakota and California gave this hopeful considerable momentum as he prepared to move next into Chicago for the Democratic National Convention. A victory there would mean his nomination and his national name recognition, charisma, and track record of being a champion of the people would make his bid for the presidency a serious one. Bobby Kennedy's last public words would be his iconic victory speech in the embassy ballroom at the Ambassador Hotel. The country wants to move in a different direction. We want to deal with our own problems within our own country, and we want peace in Vietnam. What we're going to do in the rural areas of our country, what we're going to do for those who still suffer within the United States from hunger, what we're going to do around the rest of the globe, and whether we're going to continue the policies that have been so unsuccessful in Vietnam of American troops and American Marines carrying the major burden of that conflict. I do not want to, and I think we should move in a different direction. So I, so I, thank, I thank all of you who made this possible this evening. All of the effort that you made and all of the people whose names I haven't mentioned, but who made all, did all of the work at the precinct level, who got out the vote, who did all of the effort, uh, brought forth all of the effort that's required. I was a campaign manager eight years ago. I know what a difference that kind of an effort and that kind of commitment makes. So I thank all of you. Those of you who are here. Mayor, Mayor Yorty has just sent me a message that we've been here too long already. So, uh, my thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. Thank But that was not to be. After this speech, he was scheduled to exit left from the stage, make his way back through the audience, shaking hands along the way, to proceed to the ambassador ballroom to do an interview and greet a second collection of supporters. However, like the much-dissected parade route change at the last minute of the JFK motorcade, Bobby Kennedy's departure directions from the embassy ballroom stage were altered in mid-speech by his campaign manager, Fred Dutton, who decided that Bobby would put off the ambassador ballroom crowd for a bit longer in order to greet a team of reporters waiting in the colonial room on the far side of the hotel kitchens. In the show notes, I'll put a link to a diagram of these areas of the ambassador hotel so you can see the rooms I'm mentioning. Be sure to check it out because when you look at the layout, you can see just how much of a maze of corridors, rooms, hallways, and divided areas there are. 
There are also so many places for someone to hide, access one room, and exit into another hallway, restaurant, ballroom, or nightclub. Because of this maze of rooms, the entire Ambassador Hotel seems like a really difficult location to provide protection for a public figure. So as we know, Bobby's original plans to exit the Embassy Ballroom en route to the Ambassador Ballroom were altered. At the conclusion of his speech, hotel maitre d' Carl Euchre grabbed Bobby by the arm and led him through the swinging doors into the pantry area between the ballroom floor and the kitchens. According to Euchre, he was acting on orders given to him by campaign manager Dutton. Kennedy's security was led by ex-CIA agent William Barry and supplemented by former NFL player Rosie Greer. These two men were apparently not informed about the last-minute change in the route because at the end of Bobby's speech, they headed off to the left to clear a way through the crowd for Bobby's original route toward the second ballroom. This is remarkable because it is the first indication of a plot to kill Bobby Kennedy. So at one point, security officials William Barry and Rosie Greer realize Bobby is being taken off the stage in the opposite direction. So they regroup and attempt to catch up with their client. But the crowd following Kennedy makes this difficult. Bobby being led into a narrow room, his security agents separated from him, and the initial confusion unfolding. The uncontrolled scene beginning to take shape. This long narrow room had four entry exits, multiple blind spots caused by the various doorways and equipment, and was packed with 77 people when you include Bobby. Two kitchen workers were standing back to make a route for Bobby to pass through. On his way, he stopped to shake hands with one of them, busboy Juan Romero. At this point, gunshots rang out and pandemonium erupted as Sirhan Sirhan brandished a 22 pistol and fired it repeatedly. Five other people are hit with bullets and Bobby is shot in the back and in the head and falls to the floor, but he is still alive and conscious. He asks busboy Juan Romero, who is still holding his hand from shaking it, Is everyone alright? Romero instinctively says, Yes, everyone is alright. Then Bobby says, everything is going to be all right, and falls unconscious. In the meantime, Sirhan Sirhan is wrestled to the ground by security and LAPD, including Rosie Greer, and there is audio of the scene as they try to get the gun from Sirhan's gripping hand, where he continues to fire it, although it is out of bullets and just clicks. Bobby is taken first to the Central Receiving Hospital one mile away, then to the Good Samaritan Hospital for surgery to remove the bullets and attempt to remedy his injuries. He has a bullet wound at the back of his head behind his right ear and that bullet fragmented and went into his brain. And two other wounds under his right arm toward the back where one bullet exited through his chest and the second lodged in his spine. He survived the surgeries to remove the bullets but died sometime later. At 2 a.m. on June 6, 1968, it was announced that Bobby Kennedy was dead. At the same time, Sirhan Sirhan was formally charged. Sirhan Sirhan was a 24-year-old Palestinian Orthodox Catholic. At the time of his arrest, he had a slip of paper in his pocket that indicated his reason for the shooting 
as Bobby Kennedy's support for Israel and violence against the Palestinians. Kennedy was shot three times and five other people in the pantry were also hit. Witnesses say that Sirhan Sirhan was flailing his pistol holding arm and firing wildly into the crowd from between three and six feet away from Bobby and in front of him. LAPD Detective Dwayne Wolfer supervised the investigation and according to his report, the eight shots from Sirhan's revolver are accounted for by the behind-the-ear shot that killed Bobby, the bullet that passed through Bobby's right shoulder, then struck Paul Schrade. One bullet goes through Bobby's side and stops in his neck. Another bullet goes into his back and exits his chest to be lost in the ceiling. Another bullet hits Ira Goldstein. One hits Erwin Strahl. One hits William Weisel. And the eighth bullet hit Elizabeth Evans. And even though there are photographs of Detective Wolfer marking additional bullet holes in the walls and swinging doors through which Bobby had just passed on his way into the pantry, he stuck to his story of eight bullets in total, a position that has been widely disputed as we will see in the next section. Part 3. The Conspiracy Theories the medical reports indicate that Bobby Kennedy was shot three times from behind, the gun barrel being a distance of one to six inches from his head, with the fatal shot entering the back of his head one inch to the left of his right ear. LA County Coroner Thomas Noguchi said that the shot that killed Bobby Kennedy was fired from less than one inch away from his head and that it had left noticeable powder burns. Noguchi was subsequently fired for maintaining this assertion, which was in conflict with the official position that Sirhan had shot Bobby from at least three to five feet away and from in front of him. All witnesses in the pantry placed Sirhan Sirhan in front of Kennedy at the time of the shooting. Not a single witness described Sirhan Sirhan as being any closer than three feet from Kennedy with most saying he was five to six feet away from the senator when the shooting took place. Now, proponents of the official story have claimed that Sirhan could have been at the closest distance described by the witnesses, three feet, and that his outstretched arm could have then put the gun against Bobby's head to make the point-blank shot described by the coroner. Two things here. First, if that is the case, then why was the coroner coerced to change his findings of a point-blank shot by the LAPD, then fired when he would not do so? And second, if you see a man standing close enough to put a gun against someone's head, and you witness them shoot that person, you would never do the math to subtract the length of that person's arm to augment the distance the shooter was away from the victim when telling the police what happened. Anyone would just say the shooter was right next to the victim. He shot him point blank. You wouldn't describe someone holding a gun to someone's head as being three feet away because their arm was outstretched and their arm plus the distance between their shoulder and their underlying torso is about equal to three feet. This is a joke and just one indication of the links people will go to to maintain their faith in the corporate media. Reporter Stanislav Przinsky, who had been recording Bobby Kennedy's speech, 
failed to stop his recorder as the senator exited the room and the crowd somewhat followed. His poor quality audio captures what sound analyst Phil Van Prague has determined are 13 gunshots in 5 seconds, including two pairs of shots, shots 3 and 4, and shots 7 and 8, which come so close together as to be impossible to have come from one gun. Van Prague investigated and studied the audio recording for three years. His findings were independently confirmed by two different analysts, one being Spencer Whitehead, an audio science professor at Georgia Institute of Technology, and the other being forensic audio specialists Wes Dooley and Paul Pegas of Audio Engineering Associates in California. All three of these research teams concluded that the audio recording reveals more than eight shots, as well as overlapping shots, which indicates more than one weapon being fired at the time Bobby Kennedy was killed. Attempts by Sirhan's lawyers to have this audio evidence, as well as other evidence of a second gunman in the pantry that night, have been blocked by the state, most recently when a petition making this claim was denied by Judge Beverly O'Connell in 2015. The pantry area of the Ambassador Hotel where Bobby was shot is perhaps the ideal location to execute such a shooting. It's closed in, but also has multiple exits. There are no cameras with wide-angle viewpoints. Fewer people can fit in the space when compared to the large ballrooms, which means fewer witnesses. And the exits, essentially two on each end with one being on each wall at the corners, lead to the kitchen and other corridors which in turn lead to restaurants, clubs, ballrooms, and all of those have multiple passageways and exits as well. In 1987, it was discovered that the LAPD had destroyed multiple items of evidence regarding the case of Bobby Kennedy's shooting. The LAPD's own spokesperson lists these destroyed items as... 1. Ceiling panels with bullet holes in them from the Ambassador Hotel Pantry 2. Thousands of photographs of the scene 3. The lab reports of their tests on Sirhan's gun 4. The center divider between the swinging doors into the pantry and a door jam from those same doors which led from the embassy ballroom through which Bobby had entered the small room and which were listed as containing bullet holes both the door jam and the divider removed and destroyed by the LAPD. 5. The left sleeve of both Bobby Kennedy's shirt and his sport coat, both removed and destroyed. 6. All scientific reports of the crime scene, included in this evidence admittedly destroyed by the LAPD, includes the spectrograph analysis of all the bullets found to have struck the five people and Bobby that night in the pantry. Spectrographic evidence identifies metal compositions of batches of bullets and, unlike rifling, is virtually impossible to tamper with. This destruction of evidence, once again, harkens back to the assassination of JFK. John Conley's suit and the blood-soaked limousine immediately scrubbed clean on orders from LBJ. The limo shipped to the Fisher Body Works plant in Detroit, where the bullet-riddled windshield was removed and thrown away on orders from the intelligence agents accompanying the car. And on and on and on. So once again, we see valuable evidence being destroyed 
never to be analyzed or inspected again. Gone. Ballistic evidence was fully ignored, like the lead coating on the inside of Sirhan's 22 revolver barrel, which is inconsistent with the copper-coated bullets found in Kennedy and elsewhere at the scene. An official panel of seven ballistics experts assembled by the LA County Board of Supervisors concluded that, one, the three bullets that struck Bobby Kennedy came from the same gun, two, all seven experts said that while they had been given no evidence of a second gun in the materials provided to them, that they could not conclude there had been no second gun or gunman. Three, five of the seven experts recommended further tests be conducted on the bullets, gun, and the crime scene. Four, not one of the seven experts would positively identify the three bullets known to have struck Bobby as coming from Sirhan's 22 revolver. 5. These experts concluded that there were significant variations among the ballistics markings on the bullets found. 6. All seven experts were unable to determine the number of bullets found at the crime scene. And 7. None of them would rule out the possibility of a second gun and gunman. However, when the media was given this report, they widely and repeatedly summarized the findings in the testimony with the half-truth phrase from the second conclusion of the ballistics team, that being, quote, they had been furnished with no evidence of a second gun, period. Leaving out the second part of that sentence in the report, which reads, they could not conclude there had been no second gun or gunman. So, this report of seven ballistic experts said, while we were given no evidence of a second gun, we can't rule out the possibility that there was a second gun. And the media selectively reported that as, they had no evidence of a second gun. This is classic media agenda spin. Donald Shulman, a CBS News employee who was behind Bobby at the time of the shots, told radio reporter Jeff Brandt immediately after the incident that, quote, a Caucasian gentleman stepped out and fired three times. Security guard. Hit Kennedy all three times. That sounds like a second gun and gunman to me. So, who was this security guard? Thane Eugene Caesar was at Bobby's elbow when he was shot. Caesar was an employee of Lockheed Aircraft. He is the only other person in the pantry besides Sirhan known to have had a gun. Caesar told the LAPD he never fired his gun. He said he was carrying a 38 revolver, but whatever gun he had was never taken or analyzed by the LAPD that we know of. When asked if he owned a 22 pistol, Caesar said he had, but that he had sold it three months before the shooting. He also later told an investigator that he had shown this 22 to an LAPD detective, insinuating that the gun had been cleared. But when the LAPD reminded him that he had initially said he had sold the gun before that night, he said that he was confused and that he must have never shown the pistol to the detective because, of course, he had already sold it. This wishy-washy kind of backpedaling reminds me exactly of Jim Garrison's interview with David Ferry in the film JFK. So, Caesar changed his story about the 22 he owned a few times, but was never given a polygraph test and was simply taken at his word by the LAPD. 
However, in 1972, an independent researcher tracked down Jim Yoder, a former Lockheed employee to whom Caesar had sold this 22 pistol. Yoder told the researcher that he had worked in the CIA-controlled U-2 spy plane section of Lockheed, which is where he had met Caesar. Yoder said he did buy the pistol from Caesar, but not until a month after the assassination of Robert Kennedy. Yoder had a handwritten bill of sale for the gun, signed by both men, and dated to confirm the sale was after RFK was shot. So Caesar lied about selling his 22 before the assassination when he actually sold it after the event. He also worked for a CIA-controlled section of Lockheed. He was interviewed minutes after the shooting by KFWB reporter John Marshall. In this interview, discovered on a tape by journalist Lily Castellano, Caesar says that Bobby Kennedy had been shot in the head, the shoulder, and through the chest from the back. These bullet wound locations were unknown to the investigation at this early juncture following the shooting, and it took the medical teams hours to fully confirm each of RFK's wounds, and Caesar had been exactly correct. It seems like a stretch that Caesar could have known where Sirhan had hit Kennedy with exactly three of the eight bullets he is said to have fired, and amid such a melee. Caesar was an interesting character to say the least. In addition to working for Lockheed at a division ran by the CIA, he was a strong supporter and campaigner for George Wallace. Caesar had associations with the American Nazi Party. He was a vocal racist, opposed publicly to integration, a key RFK policy. He was also vocally opposed to RFK's position on the war in Vietnam, and he believed that Bobby's brother JFK had, quote, sold the country down the river to the communists. So when we combine Caesar's hatred of virtually every policy from the JFK White House to the RFK campaign platforms, the fact that he had CIA connections, the CIA, remember, having been turned upside down by JFK and ruffled heavily by Bobby Kennedy's persecution of the mafia, with whom the CIA was known to have a working relationship, and the fact that LA County Coroner Thomas Noguchi said that the shot that killed Bobby Kennedy was fired from less than an inch away from his head, and that it had left noticeable powder burns on the back of his skull to the side of his ear, and that we know that Caesar had been close enough to Bobby at the time of the shooting to be holding his arm. In fact, in the photos we see of Bobby laying on the ground wounded, there is a clip-on necktie that was being worn by Caesar at the time, Bobby Kennedy having grabbed onto it and ripped it off as he fell. And that every single one of the 76 witnesses in the pantry that night said that Sirhan Sirhan was always in front of Bobby and between six and three feet away, flailing his gun and shooting wildly, we begin to see a possible picture emerge. In this picture, Sirhan Sirhan plays two roles. One, the diversionary shots. Get the crowd looking the other way so the assassin can get the kill shot, point blank, no doubts. And two, a built-in fall guy, the patsy. This is exactly the same modus operandi employed in the JFK shooting described by David Ferry according to Willie O'Keefe as retold in Jim Marr's book, Crossfire. One person fires from the back, this gets the secret service looking the other way, boom, get the kill shot. 
In both cases, the person blamed either said they didn't do it at all in the case of Lee Harvey Oswald, or say that they don't remember doing it in the case of Sirhan Sirhan. So how could someone with a political agenda to kill a public figure for a cause not remember the shooting itself? The idea that Sirhan Sirhan was under hypnosis when he committed the shooting has been around since the earliest days following the RFK assassination. LA police officer Randolph Adair said of Sirhan immediately following the shooting, quote, The guy was real confused. It was like it didn't exactly hit him what he had done. He had a blank, glassed over look on his face, like he wasn't in complete control of his mind at the time. That's pretty clear sounding testimony to support the hypnosis hypothesis. Sirhan Sirhan himself said he never remembered shooting Bobby Kennedy. In fact, he said that all he remembered was seeing his gun in his car, then going to get a cup of coffee in the hotel, presumably sometime during Bobby's speech. He spent some awkward time with a girl who we will get to later. Then the next thing he remembers is being wrestled to the ground after the shooting. Daniel P. Brown, an associate professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School, interviewed Sirhan Sirhan for more than 60 hours and said he believes he was hypnotized and manipulated into being present at the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. In a lengthy affidavit filed with Sirhan's appeal in 2011, Brown concluded that, quote, Mr. Sirhan did not act under his own volition and knowledge at the time of the assassination and is not responsible for actions coerced and or carried out by others. He was, Brown said, a true Manchurian candidate, hypno-programmed into carrying out a violent political act without knowing it. In a bizarre coincidence, the night before he was killed, Bobby Kennedy had dinner with John Frankenheimer, the director of the 1962 movie The Manchurian Candidate, about an American prisoner of war brainwashed and hypnotized into becoming an assassin. This is the source of the reference in Daniel Brown's statement and has become a catchphrase for any hypnotized or brainwashed assassin. It was also John Frankenheimer who drove Bobby Kennedy to the Ambassador Hotel that night. William Bailey, an FBI agent and scene of crime officer, said in an A&E documentary, quote, I am absolutely convinced Sirhan's gun did not fire the bullets that killed Bobby. There was a second gun there, and it was fired. Sirhan Sirhan had a 22 caliber pistol given to him by his brother. The day of the shooting, he purchased two boxes of ammo and drove to the San Diego Valley shooting range where he spent six hours on the firing range according to the ledger where users of the gun range sign in and out. He had eight bullets left after his shooting range time. He then ate a burger at a restaurant, then proceeded to the Ambassador Hotel where he had drinks, four Tom Collinses to be exact. He goes out to his car, sees his gun on the back seat, decides he's drank too much to drive, and goes back into the hotel to get coffee. Under hypnosis at some point after his arrest, Sirhan said, quote, Coffee was on my mind again. Which is a very odd and specific phrase that Sirhan Sirhan repeated multiple times, and frankly it sounds like some hypnotic programming phrase. 
It involves a recognizable idea, but phrased in a way that no one would naturally speak or say by accident. Coffee was on my mind again. This brings us to the first mention of a woman in a polka dot dress, which we will explore in depth a bit later. Sirhan says that he saw a woman in a polka dot dress and he got her a cup of coffee as well. He then says, quote, We sat for a while and then she moved and I followed her. She led me into a dark place. It was dark, really dark. But there were a lot of lights too. It blinded me. And then I was choked. He says when he saw Kennedy in the pantry, he thought, quote, He's running at me. That son of a bitch, what is he doing here? The next thing Sirhan claims to recall is being choked and dragged out of the pantry by the police. Among his personal belongings, police found at his family home in Pasadena was a notebook that had the phrase RFK must die by the 5th of June written over and over, dozens of times. This phrase was also written across other letters and papers found in the house, all written by Sirhan Sirhan. The notebooks also contain many magical sigils, symbols, spells, and incantations. Sirhan said he could not remember writing these notes in the journals. One of these notes reads, quote, My determination to eliminate RFK is becoming more the more of an unshakable obsession. RFK must die. RFK must be killed. Robert F. Kennedy must be assassinated. RFK must be assassinated. RFK must be assassinated. RFK must be assassinated. Robert F. Kennedy must be assassinated before 5 June 68. Robert F. Kennedy must be assassinated. I have never heard, please pay to the order of, 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 of this or that. Please pay to the order of. Now, it is possible that Sirhan is a psychopath and a liar, and just because he says he doesn't recall writing this letter and a bunch of others like it, doesn't necessarily mean that he really doesn't remember writing them. However, and I am no hypnosis or brainwashing expert, but that letter sounds so much more like a cliched programming mantra than a letter someone would write even about their most obsessive agenda. If you wanted to affirm your plan to kill Robert Kennedy by June 5th, you would just write Robert F. Kennedy must be assassinated before 5 June 68 and be done with it. But the incessant repetition and the way it's written just comes across as something almost trance-like. This sort of repetition and almost nonsensical level of obsessive focus is indicative of some of the characteristics of automatic writing, which is used by both creatives and the result of someone writing while under hypnosis. And then the ending is very strange. The last two sentences which say, I have never heard, please pay to the order of, of, with eight instances of the word of in a row. Then again, the phrase, please pay to the order of. Once again, we see the use of a common phrase, but one that no one is likely to utter in casual conversation. This is a phrase printed on checks for anyone who remembers what a check is. It's a common sentence, but not one ever really used when speaking to someone. It sounds like some kind of programming trigger. Please pay to the order of. And it makes no sense for him to write it in this note. It's irrelevant to the subject. Much like the familiar but awkward phrase, 
coffee was on my mind again. We hear Sirhan repeat this several times in his testimony and interviews. The police also found letters of correspondence between Sirhan and the Rosicrucians, which is an offshoot of the Temple of the Golden Dawn, both magical societies. Sirhan had been in the ROTC as a high schooler, and he could speak multiple languages. Dr. Eric Marcus, a court-appointed psychiatrist for the defense, administered to Sirhan the MMDI, or Minnesota Multiplastic Personality Inventory Test. This is a series of over 500 true-false questions used to determine psychological profiles by comparing the results to statistical norms. In the test, non-responses are weighted heavier than true-false answers. Out of the 500-plus questions, Sirhan had non-responses on, that is, he did not answer, only two questions. They were question 291, true or false, at one or more times in my life I have felt that someone was making me do things by hypnotizing me, and question 293, true or false, someone has been trying to influence my mind. So those are the only two questions out of over 500 that he just did not answer. A Dr. Diamond, who was the psychiatrist at the prison where Sirhan was incarcerated, said that Sirhan had obviously been exposed to hypnosis before. Dr. Diamond said that Sirhan could easily write while hypnotized, and that when asked to write his answers while hypnotized, Sirhan responded to a few questions about his notebook pages. Is this crazy writing? Dr. Diamond asked, referring to Sirhan's notebooks, to which Sirhan wrote out, yes, yes, yes. Are you crazy? Dr. Diamond asked. No, 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 Sirhan wrote. Well, why are you writing crazy then? Diamond asked. Practice, 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 Sirhan wrote. Practice for what? Diamond asked. Mind control, mind control, mind control, Sirhan responded. And here's one final note on the automatic writing journals of Sirhan found in his home after the shooting. Anything mentioned in the presence of a subject under hypnosis is permanently etched into their subconscious mind, especially if it comes from the hypnotist. These bits of information can often flow out when the subject is under hypnosis sometime later. Could Sirhan have written something in his notebooks that may be a clue to who was hypnotizing him? It's possible that Sirhan left some such scrap of information for us in his notebooks, information to serve as a clue to the identity of his programming hypnotizer. One section in one of his letters may be just that. The written passage reads, God help me, please help me, Salvo D, D Salvo, and that's D with a D-I. The reference apparently to Albert de Salvo, the notorious Boston Strangler. That case had been solved through the use of hypnotism. The hypnotist had been Dr. William Joseph Bryan Jr. of Los Angeles. Bryan was known to obsessively mention his success with regard to cracking the Albert DeSalvo Boston Strangler case. Bryan had also bragged about working with and hypnotizing James Earl Ray, who was convicted of shooting Martin Luther King Jr., but whom the King family believed was innocent as did a judge and jury in a wrongful death civil trial that found Lloyd Jowers guilty of conspiring with government agency members to kill MLK. 
Dr. Bryan had been a pilot and in the Korean War, he had been used as a hypnotist for the Air Force as part of a program to help soldiers, if captured, resist interrogation or brainwashing. After the Korean War, Brian went to work for the CIA in their mind control and behavior modification programs. He eventually set up an alternative medicine and hypnotherapy clinic on the Sunset Strip in Hollywood, just 15 minutes from Sirhan Sirhan's home. Brian was a member of the old Roman Catholic Church, which was the same church for which David Ferry, a prime suspect in the JFK assassination, had been a priest. Only hours after the RFK shooting and before Sirhan had been publicly identified, Brian appeared on the LA radio show of Ray Bream and commented that the person who had shot RFK was probably acting under hypnotic suggestion. When asked about this comment in later interviews, Brian would become angry, change the subject, and at least once walked out on an interview. Dr. William Bryan Jr. died in Las Vegas in 1977, and his offices and personal papers were immediately sealed by his probate lawyer, John Minor, who also blocked access to the press. Attorney John Minor had helped prosecute Sirhan Sirhan as then-deputy DA. So that's a lot of conspiracy threads to reconcile, but the conclusion of it all is that Dr. Bryan was a famed hypnotist. He had connections to David Ferry, who was implicated in the JFK assassination. Brian worked as a hypnotist for the Navy to help soldiers resist mind control and for the CIA to help them apply mind control. He had an office in Los Angeles just 15 minutes from where Sirhan Sirhan lived in Pasadena. His most celebrated accomplishment had been using hypnosis to solve the case of the Boston Strangler, Albert DeSalvo. Brian was known to constantly brag about this part of his career. He was also known to brag about having hypnotized James Earl Ray, who was convicted of killing MLK, but is the subject of a completely different conspiracy. The name DeSalvo was written in some of Sirhan Sirhan's automatic writing pages found in his home after the assassination. It is common for hypnosis subjects to engage in automatic writing like the Sirhan examples, and often certain phrases and words that they have heard while under hypnosis will come out in later hypnotic automatic writing sessions. One reason that the Bobby Kennedy assassination and its many conflicting circumstances has gone so largely ignored by the public as a whole and by alternative researchers as well is due to the fact that the assassination and its connected conspiracy claims were investigated by a special department of the LAPD and their findings have been largely taken as wrapping up the case. Unlike the investigation into the JFK shooting conducted by Jim Garrison, however, the people in charge of the Bobby Kennedy investigation have more in common with the Warren Commission than they do a dedicated and honest district attorney. In order to investigate all of the complex allegations surrounding the Bobby Kennedy assassination, the LAPD set up Special Unit Senator, or SUS. SUS was headed by a curious figure, Lieutenant Manuel Pena. Pena had deep connections to the CIA. He had actually retired from the LAPD six months before the RFK shooting to go to work for the Agency of International Development, Office of the State Department. 
This agency was a creature of the CIA, organized to provide clandestine advisors for police and intelligence services in Southeast Asia and Latin America for the purposes of anti-communist operations. According to California Chief Deputy Attorney General Charles A. O'Brien, this program was designed to teach foreign allies the techniques of assassination. So that's another brainful, but basically, a longtime CIA operative retires from the LAPD, goes to work for a CIA program set up to teach foreign assets the techniques of assassination, then returns to the LAPD to be the lead investigator into the assassination of RFK, a man who was committed to breaking up the CIA and who, with his previously assassinated brother, had fired or forced resignation upon some of the CIA's top men. And as if this case doesn't already have enough complex connections to make a whole film noir detective series, enter the femme fatale. The woman in the polka dot dress. Sandy Serrano, a Robert Kennedy campaign volunteer, told NBC News reporter Sander Vanacore on live TV that moments after what she would learn had been the shooting, a man with a young woman in a polka dot dress passed her on a stairway in the Ambassador Hotel. The woman said, quote, We shot him! We shot him! When Sandy Serrano asked whom they had shot, the woman said, Senator Kennedy! <laughs> Then, she and the man proceeded to run down the last steps of the stairs and disappear into the L.A. night. Later, a bag which contained a white dress with black polka dots was found in a nearby alley by the LAPD, but they could never determine whose it was. This is an indication that the dress was some sort of trigger mechanism for Sirhan and that it had been shed after serving its purpose, but who could ever know for sure? Rather than being protected and interviewed on the record by the LAPD, Sandy Serrano, who had seen the woman in the polka dot dress, was, according to an A&E documentary, browbeaten by the investigating officers and she never spoke of this encounter again. A witness named Vincent DePiro, who was in the pantry when Kennedy was shot, told the LAPD he had seen a girl in a white dress with dark polka dots who seemed to be holding Sirhan Sirhan just before the shooting. According to Sirhan Sirhan in later testimony, this woman pinched him on the shoulder, then spun him around to see people coming through the kitchen door. And then he said, quote, Then I was back on the target range, a flashback to the shooting range. I didn't know that I had a gun. Another witness claimed to have seen Sirhan Sirhan that same day but before the Bobby Kennedy assassination at a firing range with a woman in a polka dot dress and another man and that Sirhan Sirhan was firing a handgun so wildly that this witness felt uncomfortable and left the shooting range. It was only after seeing photos of Sirhan Sirhan after Bobby was shot that they recognized him as the man they had seen at the range with the woman. In 2012, Nina Hughes claimed that she had told the LAPD that there had been a second shooter in the Ambassador Hotel that night, but that her testimony had been altered. She specifically indicated 15 instances in the official report where her statements had been changed regarding the numbers of shots fired and the numbers of gunmen present. Once again, this kind of altered testimony reminds us of similar claims made by witnesses after the release of the Warren Commission report. 
my summary. When I first decided to make the RFK assassination the subject of episode 15, I thought it would be easy. I thought I knew most of the circumstances surrounding the events, but in reality, I'd never dug very deeply into this case. I knew there was speculation of Sirhan Sirhan as a Manchurian candidate type character. I knew RFK had enemies in the CIA and the Mafia and the proponents of war in Vietnam. And I thought, like many people, that his assassination was very likely conducted for some of the same reasons as his brothers. Like-minded cold warriors didn't want JFK 2.0 in the White House, so when it became clear that Bobby would get the DNC nomination to run, that was it. He was gone. And all of that may be true, but when I started down the path of the deep research into this case, I realized as it unfolded that this is an unsolved mystery with almost as many ins, outs, and facets as the JFK shooting, and maybe even more. Doing alternative research is a special kind of activity because it requires you to spend hours searching, reading, watching, and listening to evidence in order to arrive at conclusions based on a wide variety of connections, events, and documentation. Many times this evidence has been gathered and presented by mainstream sources, and those sources always have some position to present or protect. Doing this level of research and reporting takes time that I am happy to spend because I love doing it and I enjoy sharing it with you for free and without ads, because ads drive me crazy when I'm trying to listen to a podcast. You can help me keep doing research and delivering these fun ad-free episodes to you by visiting our Patreon page in the show notes and becoming an RFA agent. You get tons of extra content and Renegade Files gets to stay independent so you can always have it to listen to. It's free to visit the Patreon page, and there's even some free content there as well, so check it out and I'll see you in there. In the future, I'll do an episode for you on the hallmarks of a deep state event and the methods and goals of propaganda. Once you know those methods and components, recognizing their footprints becomes second nature, and you can quickly see through much of the disinformation that is paraded out as news for the masses. We live in a time when access to information is unprecedented, but gathering objective data in the face of increasingly censored multimedia channels grows to be more of a challenge every day. However, in the times of JFK and RFK, the information people had access to was far more controlled, far more centralized. The irony is that at that time, media information was also viewed as being far more objective and unbiased than it is today. Maybe it was. As our federal government grew larger over the years, the centralization of both communication regulation and private media outlets became increasingly concentrated. Today, a mere handful of companies own every news agency, radio station, cable network, entertainment company, record label, and internet big data giant. Do you think there is any difference between the overall messages delivered by the news, the messages delivered in the sitcoms and reality shows, and the messages delivered in the advertising? So what does all of this have to do with the Bobby Kennedy assassination? Well, after Bobby Kennedy was killed, Richard Nixon went on to become president and the war in Vietnam continued, at least officially, for five more years. In that time, the nightly newscasts became a play-by-play -play of the war, 
the casualties on both sides, and the scores of each were like a detached football game to be viewed from the safety of your living room. The stories of what was happening in Vietnam and why were being produced by the same organizations who had told us who shot Bobby Kennedy and why, who shot JFK and why. And the reality is the official whys of all three of these scenarios leave very much to be desired. Regarding Bobby Kennedy specifically, where do we fall out after all this espionage and hypnosis and shady character drama? It doesn't take a Harvard doctor to see the hypno-programming evidence trailing behind everything Sirhan Sirhan wrote, said, and did, all of which reeks of a mind-controlled lackey fall guy distraction patsy. The first police officer to interact with Sirhan Sirhan described him as having, quote, a blanked, glassed-over look on his face like he wasn't in complete control of his mind at the time. Sirhan's letters are textbook hypno-generated automatic writing. He said himself while under hypnosis that those letters were practice, practice, practice for mind control, mind control, mind control. I mean, that's quite literal. Those letters contain cryptic phrases like please pay to the order of, 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 of. (laughs) They repeat that RFK must die by June 5th, 1968 over and over again, referring to him as both RFK and Robert F. Kennedy as to be sure to get the right person. Those letters contain references to Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler, who had been caught thanks to Dr. William Joseph Bryan Jr., who constantly bragged about doing so and who was a hypnotist who had worked for the mind control operations of the Navy and the CIA and who had an office 15 minutes from Sirhan's house. This mind control hypnotist had associations with David Ferry who very likely helped plan the JFK shooting and who described a method of using one gunman to create a distraction for the real assassins to then serve as the fall guy for the job after the fact. So if Sirhan Sirhan had been the subject of CIA mind control, how and when could that have taken place? When Sirhan was a young man, he had aspirations to be a horse racing jockey. But at one point, he had a riding accident which put him in the hospital. The horse track where Sirhan had his riding accident was owned by known members of the mafia who were known to be working with the CIA. According to his family, While in the hospital, Sirhan disappeared for several days and no one could tell them where he was. When he suddenly and inexplicably showed back up in the hospital, he was never the same again. Bobby Kennedy was shot at point-blank range from the back while all 76 witnesses in the pantry at the time insisted that Sirhan was always in front of Bobby and as far away as 6 feet. The closest person to Bobby when he was shot was Thane Caesar, a right-wing extremist racist who hated everything the Kennedys stood for, who lied about ownership and sale of the same caliber gun that killed Bobby, who was directly behind Bobby at the time of the shooting when everyone was watching Sirhan, who flailed his arm wildly, shot eight random bullets and eight random directions into the room hitting five other people and who knows what else. The LAPD then destroyed every bit of scientific evidence pertaining to the room, the ballistics reports, the metal analysis of bullets found, 
the bullet-riddled ceiling tiles, door frames, and clothing from the scene. Then they brought a former officer out of retirement and away from his job at the CIA teaching foreign governments the finer details of successful assassination campaigns and appointed this person to head the investigation into the Bobby Kennedy assassination. Bobby Kennedy had a legacy of enmity with the CIA, the Mafia, and Hawks in the Pentagon and was poised to run for president and very probably win. He had powerful enemies and he was publicly and energetically committed to destroying them all and everything they had worked for generations to build. His alleged killer, while supposedly motivated by clear righteous political reasons, claimed to have no memory of the shooting and is believed to this day by many, including Bobby Kennedy's son Robert Kennedy Jr., to absolutely not be the person who shot his father. So this is a case of the official story being fully at odds with a long, complex list of facts, connections, suppositions, and destroyed evidence that indicates something much more diabolical and intricate than the tidy, low-nut gunman conclusion. Sirhan Sirhan is still in prison, with his death sentence having been rescinded when California did away with the death penalty. His numerous parole applications have been denied, most recently in January 22 by Governor Gavin Newsom. Sirhan Sirhan will likely live out his life in prison. Looking at him now, he is a far-aged shadow of the young, frail, haunted man we see staring into the camera as he is carried away by policemen after the shooting of RFK. He gazes into the bright flash photograph as if he isn't even sure what a camera is. He looks like someone who was raised by wolves and was just now brought into civilization for the first time. He swears he doesn't remember shooting anyone. He says he didn't even know he had a gun. He says he saw a woman in a polka dot dress and that she was beautiful. So beautiful. He says... She led me into a dark place. It was dark. Really dark. He says, Coffee was on my mind again. Coffee was on my mind again. Thank you sincerely for coming with me to research the Bobby Kennedy assassination. Subscribe or follow the show now so together we can meet here every 10 days and explore a new unsolved mystery, paranormal event, or covert conspiracy. I'm thrilled to have you in the Renegade Files crew. I'm your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, warrior child. Warrior child.